What if all you needed to get better in every way was available at the touch of a hand or the sound of a voice or even a vibration? Let's talk about how that happens, who can do it, and where to find them. I'm John Webster, and this is The Hesitant Healer. Greetings and welcome to The Hesitant Healer, another episode of... I'm sitting here with my trusty sidekick, Lisa Kay. Say hi, Lisa Kay. <laughs> hi, everybody. How you doing? She got it right this time, you guys. It's so good. <laughs> so today, uh, we have reached across some of the United States to get a hold of one of my good old friends who is another somanot, somebody who likes to... Uh, play in the world of cadavers and learn a lot of stuff from uh, somebody that has donated their body to science. And her name is Fran Phillips. And she hails from up north near San Francisco. Are you men? Where are you at? I am just outside of San Francisco. I'm in my, the practice I'm in is in Redwood City, but I live in Mountain View. Redwood City. There we go. But there currently, go. you are in Colorado Springs, Colorado, working with Gil Headley on a uh, six-day dissection with uh, what we just found out is a group of about, what, 28 people. So, you guys are packed inside that thing today, huh? You know, it, it's it's been a great group, lively group, and we've been together now for day, f we're day four for six mm -hmm. days. Well, they're doing a 10-day, but I'm just being there for six where are you at in the day you've gone through the skin? Uh, Sunday was skin. Um, Monday was official fascia. And then Tuesday was more superficial fascia. And then we went into, we, we've actually spent almost two days on muscles. So we're fluffing muscles like crazy at the moment, just delineating them from each other and trying to get a really good view without having to rush because sometimes we just do one day of muscles and we don't move you know we move on to the next thing but because it's a 10 day there's you're able to luxuriate a little bit more in in the um muscles what type of uh, uh professions are in the room this time you know john that's a great question we have anthropologists <gasps> oh in the room yeah we have three anthropologists of course we've got the massage therapists we've got the pilates teachers uh we have structural integration um teachers as well teachers as well as practitioners we've got an occupational therapist so we've got you know we've got an amazing eclectic group of people nice Awesome. Uh, let's tell everybody what it is you do for a living, and then let's get into how this kind of work helps you in your day to life. Let's see. So I started out as a group fitness instructor 25 years ago when I arrived from Australia and I did not have a working permit. So I had a wives visa and I walked into the local YMCA and I said, if you teach me to be an instructor, I will volunteer hours to you. So wow. I volunteered three and a half years worth of work oh wow went from teaching aqua aerobics to land um, classes and a girlfriend of mine said maybe you should become a personal trainer and i went okay that's something interesting and at that point i was given a work permit and i was a regional manager for a boot camp company because back then in the 2000s that was all the rage was boot camps became a personal trainer and one day, one of my girlfriends from the YMCA said, I'm going to a Pilates training. You're coming with me. I went, uh, what? I beg your pardon? She said, yep, you're coming with me. So 
I then spent, I've spent the last 20 years teaching Pilates and movement. And then I got a little frustrated with Pilates seeing that um, some things just don't change. And in California, you know, uh, personal trainers and Pilates teachers can't do hands-on work. So I went off to- Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yep, Mm -hmm. can't put hands-on. So I went back to school and I became a massage therapist and found myself in the realm of neurokinetic therapy, NKT, found it resonated with me. It's massage therapy and finding out what compensation patterns are present. And I would add movement. I would do a Pilates move with someone and say, you know, that doesn't look quite right. I would throw in some NKT protocol and then they would do the movement again. And and the astonishment on their faces was always, it is priceless, basically. The way they feel before and after, I always give them a before and after benchmark. Mm -hmm. And I just found that seemed to be the right that's the kind of the right sort of theme for the work that I do. I do anatomy and motion. Um, I'm learning PDT, PTDR, which is, I call these two methods, NKT and PDTR, new technology, which works really great in Silicon Valley because if you say it's new technology, they smile and they go, oh, I get that. Right. And then there's no more questions. Right. <laughs> like, they're like, okay, I don't understand how my iPhone works, so I don't want to understand how this works, but I know you understand it, so go for it. So this is this is mere um, melding body work and movement together. Exactly. So I spent a lot of time. To doing- facilitate function and movement and the breaking of uh, adhesions and stuck tissues and that kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, so I, I really don't do traditional massage. I do massage that incorporates the protocols of if you have a muscle that's facilitated, you release it, and you've got a muscle that's inhibited, you activate it. And movement just works really well with that. The so you're, you're probably a lot like me in that when somebody asks you what you do, you can't just say I'm a massage therapist because that does not cover it. <laughs> So, but John, that's the thing. Your tool, your toolbox gets really big over the years, right? I love so that word. Yeah. Someone asked you and you're like, well, my first husband was a chef. And so he had this beautiful role that he would bring out with all his knives and the knives all did something for him, right? So that's how I feel our toolbox is. It's just this array of equipment or knowledge. And then when someone stands in front of us, we decide, okay, what what are we going to pull out of the toolbox to help this person that's standing in front of us? And it's not always the same, right? Because everybody's an individual and you're dead right. I have no idea what I do because every time I have someone new in front of me, the toolbox gets open and there I go going off down one trail. And you don't know what you're going to use until you get in there, right? Nope. Nope. I use muscle activation technique. I knew, yeah. So I use a lot of different techniques so what uh what dissection is this for you what number i was trying to think about it the other day i think it's number 20 20 dissections and yet you're still going back so what is it you're learning because there's people out there for me it's always been 50 50 they either love it or they're like oh my god i would never right but the ones that do um, you would think that once you've done it once, you've kind of seen everything you need to see. What would number 20 bring to your practice or what are you hoping to bring to your practice or, or what happens every time you go to one of these things and then you go back home and start doing your practice in your toolbox again? That, that was one of the questions someone asked me about a couple of days ago and I'm very much a visual I remember my first anatomy class with a gentleman called Michael Murphy and Michael was one of the original rolfers 
And Michael said to me, you know, Fran, stop trying to look for things because you're going to have to feel them. And when he said that to me, I did. I spent years trying to feel them. But when I went into a lab, all of a sudden it got richer because the things that I felt I could actually now see. And every time I go back into the lab, I feel like I see something different. Like today, John, I actually dissected plantaris in, in the actual calf and went, what now? The tendon doesn't, it actually lies alongside the actual Achilles tendon. It doesn't actually meld into it to the very, very end. And I was, I was like, I hadn't seen that before. So there's, there's so many different things you see every time and you hear it like, if you're with Gil, you'll hear it again and again and again. Sometimes I haven't heard it until maybe the 12th time or the 14th time. And then so it gets richer. It gets richer and um, your hands get more educated. Does that, when you put your hands on, because of the dissection, your hands understand, you know, this is what it's, we're doing unfixed at the moment. So it's very, really? very yeah. For and 10 days? Yeah. So the first six days, John, is is the traditional six days. You know, it's skin, fascia, muscles. And then the last four days is doing a total de-skeletization. Oh, you're doing the skeletization. And for those of you out there who don't who don't understand this, there's two types of cadaver work. The first one has to do with being embalmed. And an embalmed cadaver, you, you have an indefinite amount of time. These bodies are not going to decompose. They have... Uh, the smell of formaldehyde or different variations of the formaldehyde that they've put in there. An unfixed cadaver means there are no chemicals in there. They've been bled, so you don't get a lot of blood. There is still more than would be in, in a fixed cadaver. But uh, the decomposition comes quick. And depending on the temperature of the room and what you're doing to it, uh, usually by day five or six, it gets pretty soupy. But... Um, what, what Gil's done before, I wasn't in this class, but I heard is, is, uh, if you get all the way down into the skeleton, you can really look at a lot of the articulations of the joints. You can get into a lot of the deep connective tissues of the joints. And, uh, if you, if you get into skeletization, um, skeletonization. That was very close. I know. I was so close. <laughs> um, uh, you can learn a lot from bones and seeing how those bones are connected and seeing what's what because it's it's not like CSI or uh, something you'd see on TV where it just comes right off. Mm -hmm. You could work on something uh, and work on something and work on something and then you put the cover on that the next day and come back the next day and it's it does not look like it did when you left it. Mm -hmm. Air makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, and the body's still doing stuff, you know. If right. it's fixed, it's still doing stuff. And, you know, the word is going to be decomposite. Decom Come on, John. It decomposes. Yeah. Yeah. It Decomposition. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Lisa. So, so if a body is fixed versus unfixed, uh, the joint movement is going to be different. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Definitely. When it's when it's unfixed, it's um, the range of motion is phenomenal. It's you don't know what the person's range of motion is before they pass, but right. once they're once they're actually in front of you, you can do ranges of motion that they probably haven't done for a long time because the joints are free. Yeah, I know. Julian loves to say dead people don't have frozen shoulders. <laughs> it's. Dead right. They don't have any hip problems and they don't have any frozen shoulders or stiff necks. <laughs> All things are alleviated in death. So 
Um, can you give us a for a for instance, a for example of maybe something that you found during a dissection that uh, lit you up in your day to day world, where you went, "Oh my god, I know what that is," and then maybe fixed it. You mean fixed it in other people, or fixed yeah, it yeah, in yeah, yeah, as a therapist. Well, I, everybody talks about the psoas, but for me, uh, I think, John, when we were doing the three-week with Gil, uh, uh-huh. we, we, you know, I think it was week three and we had actually um, the cavity was completely clean and the only thing that was left was uh, the pleura and the psoas. And when I looked at that and I saw it, I think most of us are always thinking about the psoas from the front of it and then the attachment into the femur for me i always look at it from the back mm-hmm. and it's coming from the um extensors all the way into the psoas from that direction versus the front mm-hmm. so if someone does have psoas issues i don't always go to the front i also go to the back interesting and ag- again for our listeners the psoas it's uh, spelled p-s-o-a-s is your primary lower back muscle. And on a cow, this is the filet mignon. It's a big muscle. And it attaches directly to the front of your spine, behind the belly button, and then traverses at a triangular angle down over both hips and attaches to the inside of your leg. So if you are to stand and you bend over straight forward and lift up, that's what that muscle does. And if you're standing straight up and down and you lift your knee up, either one of them, that's what that muscle does. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough that I learned in the three-week and have since learned a couple times in the dissections that I've done, uh, the diaphragm directly connects to where this attachment is. Uh, I think it's over, right? The diaphragm's over and the, the psoas is under. I think that's right. They join. They kind they're, of they're, do they're these. Connected. And one of the things Gil uh, tested us on in the three-week was like, now go find a book and see if you can see this mm-hmm. in any book. Because it is not. it is not in any book the way that it actually is in real life. Right. And so this explains how you can throw your back out if you sneeze, right? right? Because those two muscles are connected. And and when you've pulled your back muscle, really what you've done is is strung a guitar string and, and it's been put into spasm. And uh, usually the only way to get that out of spasm is to shorten it by lifting your legs kind of in an upside down chair. Mm-hmm. But the way that we learned this was by getting down all the way through the guts and understanding that that psoas is is what it looks like, where it connects, how you can detach it. Because, again, one of the things Julian says is, because Julian teaches way different than Gil, Mm -hmm. is is we as massage therapists like to say, I'm going to release your psoas. And, And Julian's whole point is, you ain't releasing nothing. You're touching the stomach. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all the layers that go from skin to superficial fascia to muscle to deep fascia to guts and and uh, intestines and and uh, uh, ascending, ascending, ascending colon, colon, all of the stuff that's there, you got multiple, multiple, multiple layers before you get to a psoas. So to be a body worker and get inside a body that 
where you can actually see the psoas and understand that, it gives us such a visual mm-hmm. when we're actually working on somebody to be able to palpate and put our hands where that needs to be released, mm-hmm. even though release may not be the right word. Right. But and and think- go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say that that what's been happening for me in my practice is a lot of people don't need a released psoas. They need opposite. They need someone to actually help them activate the psoas because ah. they're sitting. Some people are sitting that are coming to me are sitting 12 hours a day. Yeah. COVID for sure changed all of that. Yeah. Then they're in a dysfunct they have a dysfunctional psoas, not necessarily a tight one. Right. Interesting. So and seating seating puts that in a shortened state. So it's an inactive state. And in addition to with all the seating in front of a computer, we're bent over a little bit, so you've shortened it even more in a in a weird kind of angle. That's a really good point. And at the beginning of COVID, we did see a lot of that actually in our practice. And uh, you know, a lot of people got forced into working from home, right? And they're doing that eight, ten hours a day. But almost every one of them that we met, at least in the beginning, was doing this at their dining room table at the dining room chair, which is not the opt certainly isn't uh, the optimal uh, height or anything. And and they would all come into us like, I don't know why my back hurts. Well, let's talk about this, you know, and that's what it was. So it was that's an interesting point. Yeah, Lisa, the thing, ergonomics went out the window when everybody oh. started to go home. They didn't have the fancy chairs. Yeah. I asked my clients now, it's like, are you working on a laptop? Yes, I am. I'm like, well, how high is the laptop? Because they're not, you know, they're still thinking in that forward head position. And I'm like, think about putting your laptop on books. I don't care how many books, as long as your eyes are now parallel with your laptop, because that will help your neck, that'll help with clarity of thinking. Mm-hmm. Everything that you do in the way of ergonomics will help you, A, stay there longer if you have to stay there, because work demands work, right? Right. Um, but to make it intelligent sitting, you know, and that's part, most people weren't doing it through COVID, right? You know what I find a lot of too is uh, finger pads, the rotating of the finger pads. You have your arm in a forward position. You have your wrist rotated, your elbow rotated, your shoulder rota- rotated, and they're using their finger to just go in little bitty circles, and that goes all the way up into the neck, and then they can't figure out why their shoulders hurt or why they get carpal tunnel because they've rotated that entire muscle system. And so a lot of times I'll tell people if you're using – I don't do – there's not many things I'm absolute about. Finger pads, I'm 100% absolute. Stop using the finger pad, get a mouse, spend the five bucks or whatever, and put your hand straight out here and change that rotation. Because when when they finish working, they're not releasing this little finger. We're all going home like this because nobody's decompressing from their body language that they're using at work all day long. And so that makes a difference. I love it. I, you know, I it didn't it didn't even dawn on me. I I've been seeing people with shoulder issues, and I didn't ask them if they've been using a pad. I assume that's my thing. I was assuming I was in high tech for many years. I assumed that everybody had an ergonomic keyboard and a mouse that they used. They don't. They don't now, John. Right? Yeah, they're using these fancy pads that are just using their fingers, and of course, it radiates all the way up through the shoulder and the neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, you go into the brachial plexus under the under the arm here. You can feel you can feel every one of those things just all knotted up, 
And so what I love about dissection, the last time I did one, um, I got to do a brachial plexus in, in, in depth. Somebody let me play with the whole thing and I got all those things apart to see and feel the tensegrity of that entire line of nerves and and what holds them, the, the connective tissue between that nerve plexus and, and being able to take that thing apart and seeing how it, it reacted to the, the elasticity of the arm movement um, really helps when you get back onto a live body and see one that's really stuck, yeah? Well, at John, people that live with their shoulders around their ears, that whole brachial plexus is completely suffocated, if that's a good word for it. They're suffocated and they're not able to get any release and tension. And sometimes you have to ask for help. And that's where I think that telling people put your shoulders down or helping them understand their shoulders are down makes a huge difference. Right. Um, I have a question. So we... We who have been around this uh, for a long time um, kind of get used to having a uh, deceased person's body that we are cutting up and learning from, right? This is, but but I have talked to a lot of people, um, clients and, and others who, like John said, totally get freaked out about this. Um, what can you, I guess, what can you both say to those who uh, who do donate, who whose families um, either respect their wishes or or give the body after death uh, to be studied by uh, people like you guys? Is there what's the benefit for you, and and how do we feel about those people who have donated? Well, we're forever grateful for sure. And, I would uh, that word. Yeah, grateful is a, a powerful word for this. Yeah. I know. I know where you're at. They have a donation program. Usually, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Depending on where you go, um, is dependent on where that body comes from. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of times with big universities or whatnot, they're donated directly to the universities, and the universities in a medical program deal with how they do their bodies and are donated to universities so that they can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the lab that you're in, they have a local program that they've garnered for a number of years now where they have uh, private donations that go directly to the lab there in Colorado Springs. This is the Institute for Anatomical Research is the name of the place that you're at. And uh, the Gil and James are running it now and, and um, I cannot understate, overstate. I can't overstate how reverent we are as a group, and especially the people who uh, do the work of trying to get the donations to come in, how reverent we are and, and grateful we are for the people who do this so that we can do this work to help others. And James talked about that today a little bit at lunch. He he stated that at the Institute they want to go above and beyond for those that have donated their um, their forms to us to learn from. He likes he likes to do more so that the when the forms are complete and we've used them and then they are sent to, you know, processing crematorium and then they ensure that the whole person is sent back to the family. 
after and and he said that's just what we do we just want to make sure that it is um a process that is respectful for the people that donated but also to the families they have something that is um something that they have that's a solid so it's tangible it's it's right you can have a a, a memorial uh, between the time that you have you, the the cremains returned to you, definitely, and I'm and I've heard of that many, many, many times. Um, but when they actually have something uh, tangible in their hand, um, it, it's very respectful and uh, something to be super thankful for. I think as a family member, the, there is a degree of respect that that and labs that I've been in and, and the instructors I've been with. Um, who go above and beyond to ensure the the stability of that respect. And so much so that I've been in a room where doctors have actually come in and they start to see how we're behaving and and working on these bodies and they immediately understand the respect that we have and that we've learned with this. A lot of times it's easy to use verbiage that makes it sound like we're just tearing a body apart, and that's not the case at all. We are learning how to use the tools of the trade and and in dissection learning how to find different avenues of how a body comes apart and how a body's put together. But in the, in the soup to nuts, when it comes in embalmed with us, there is a reverence upon meeting this this cadaver Mm -hmm. there is an understanding of of respecting what this person did in life so that we may work through their death and learn from them and Mm -hmm. their hope was that we would do this as well Mm -hmm. and then at the end no matter what the state of that cadaver is at the end whether it's just been used for um, arms and legs, or if it was gone all the way to skeletoniz- yep, I got it. Skeletonization. Oh, very good. <laughs> then, then what happens afterwards when we're done is that that body and those pieces that came from it all end up together and in as articulately as possible put in the anatomical correct positions that they came from Mm -hmm. and then put in a box uh, for cremation but they're put in such a way that that is how they would have been let's say if they were in a horrible car crash too right Mm -hmm. they're still put there like they were put there from a funeral home Mm -hmm. right and then when we're working on these cadavers on the tables not one tiny microscopic piece ends up anywhere other than with that body. There is a protocol that's used throughout these classes where um, if pieces fall off on the floor, if they end up on a table, if if a tiny little piece of adipose tissue ends up on a scalpel or a blade, every single one of those pieces ends up back with that body mm-hmm. or in a container that goes with that body specifically and that is a, a heightened sense of awareness every minute that we're working on these things mm-hmm. so that they can be put back in their uh, correct order so that when they're buried or given back to the families, uh, we've done that with the utmost respect, just like a funeral home would do, if not better. Right. Um, let's uh, come out of that lab 
and talk a little bit about uh, your world travels and uh, what you found in Gubin. Talk a little bit about Gubin, if you could. Back in 2017, um, a letter went out asking for people to apply to be part of the Plastin the Plastination project that Robert Schleip had um, envisaged and wanted to make real. And at the time when I got the letter, I applied and I was one of, I think there might have been about 14 of us, I think, that went for Gubin. We actually went to the, to the actual um, facility where they made the Body Worlds exhibition. Wow. And Those are the, the plasticized bodies that you see in some of those ex exhibitions, yeah? Mm -hmm. Correct. These are the ones that um, have been processed with polymer and then placed in all kinds of wonderful positions from soccer players all the way to yoga instructors all the way to seeing all the different organs and circulatory systems, nervous system. I mean, it's worldwide, and I think a lot of people now, if you just say the word body worlds, a lot of people now understand what you're talking about. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you've you've been there and you've been to the factory and seen. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And so the first week we were there in 2018, we created um, from ProSections fascial, fascial um, specimens that would go through the polymer process then in the end would also be part of the body worlds exhibition throughout the world oh wow wow so one piece was um the pericardium with the diaphragm it was dissected and then put, put through the process and survived uh, pieces of fascia around the knee around the elbow that survived pieces that were thick enough that the adipose tissue would disintegrate, but the matrix was still there. Mm. And you could see the matrix and you could see the shapes that they that they were in when you actually did the dissection and they put it into play, like it looked like it was on a real elbow when they put it in the exhibition at the Fascia Research Congress in Berlin. Wow. Um, so so to, to try and put this in perspective, this would kind of be like cutting an orange in half and then taking out all the pulpy parts, but leaving the white part still intact to the inside of the skin and then plasticizing that so you could see what it looked like, except you did it with a knee. <laughs> did it with my piece was a knee with the knee, yeah, was the knee. And, wow. they, and they've done compartments that they were able to pull literally, people were pulling out muscle fibers one by one to be able wow. to leave the matrix behind so you could see where the muscle bundle was and, and how the fascia was enveloping it and then the fascial bundle that was enveloped within that and then the actual piece was the final exoskeleton, I suppose, of the fascia that was left behind. That was in 2018. We went back in 2020. We did it again. I think that another crew did it in 2019. And just recently, we did it again um, at the beginning of 20, I think it was 2023. I can't remember, John. I've been there so many times now. I it was, absolutely adore you. It was 21. And the, and the reason I know this is because this is where a little tear escapes from my eye. <laughs> I was accepted to go to that one. And, and two days before I was to get on the plane, Germany changed the vaccination requirements and I was axed out. That's it, John. I remember that story now. It was uh, heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. Uh, at least I was in the boat. Yeah, I got chosen. And, and these are a lot of people we know. This is a small group of, of 
you know, the 2014 class and some of the, I guess, all kind of Gill people, really, all, all things lead, all roads lead to Gill on mm. this one. And, and a lot of them, I mean, we all know each other now. And, and we've spidered out globally and we're doing this kind of work, but it all comes from a lot of the cadaver work, too. And, and experience, right? We've all had experience. We keep going back to that experience and that experience makes your hands very um, educated in what you're doing with the yeah, dissections. Yeah, yeah. And that someone said that to me, one of the MDs that was there in Goobin said, you're very good at this. And I said, well, only because I've been doing it many times over and it's not uh, you know, it's not intimidating you just got to tell me what it is that you want and then i can produce it and i think a lot of us that were there were saying the same thing tell us what you want and we'll give you the specimen and we'll see if it goes through the, the process yeah mm-hmm. julie Juli- julian likes to use me as an ex-ice carver he's like how do you carve a swan i'm like you carve everything that doesn't out that doesn't look like the swan and it's I'm the same s- thing with dissection we've all learned you're frozen right? up again and, and- a lot of times we've all learned that uh, uh, the things we see in the anatomy books are not reality. And and uh, again, Julian's really great at saying this. Here's a picture in a book. Make it look like that. Well, once you make it look like that, if that person were alive, that muscle wouldn't function the way it's supposed to function. Correct. Because all the things that we've pulled out already were part of what made that muscle work and what made that matrix work because and this is this is where you get to see it's truly all connected one piece doesn't work without the other piece it's all connected from the tip of your head to the tip of your toes and and we were talking about that today was that everyone that we come into contact in our lives in our working lives that they all think that it's parts and it's it's we're a machine right they see us this is part the, the elbow is not in any way connected to the shoulder they don't understand that and yeah. I, i'm hoping that the people that have been touched by this work we amplify it out saying that we're all connected and the only way that makes these parts or layers is with a tool it's with a tool i remember um john being in a a workshop where we were talking about how really there isn't attachments and origins and insertions and muscles right and one lady went pale and white and she said what do you mean she said i i i know every muscle has an insertion and it has an origin and that's what i've learned and that's what i'm going to stick by and the detection lab had said to her we're going to encourage you to go into a dissection lab and do the dissection and see that we're all whole and not parts. And um, I think she was floored by it. I think she was completely floored. There could be any other model but what we've been right. taught in books. And right? a lot of time, a lot of times, we see our doctors talk that way too. Right. And and in fact, Western medicine is predicated on parts nowadays too. That's the unfortunate part. Right. You know, and and it, when I when I talk about migraines and them being uh, every once in a while, I find that they're attached to the right ovary, which is two feet to three feet away from the from the actual part. It, it, you have to explain how me. You can see I'm in. The, I'm on the video pulling my t-shirt down. That way down here where I'm pulling my t-shirt is where the problem is. However, way up here is where you feel the pain, because I've seen that. And because I've worked with that, I I know how to get to that. But you go to a doctor, they're going where the pain is, and they're not talking about associated parts at all. And that, that's unfortunate. They don't talk global, right? 
Correct. No. They talk local, but they don't talk global. It's so true. Um, you know, just as an aside, as a personal story, so last year, it's been a year now, I had um, I had to have some surgery on my right foot and um, went to a great podiatrist, had a really nice surgery, outcome was great. Um, my whole goal was to get back to running and that's really what I wanted to do. And so I was at the point where I was ready to do that and I was doing a little. And then all of a sudden, my left foot, I, I got a torn tendon. Now the podiatrist, I went back and he's like, I don't know, like none of that, you know, maybe they're connected, maybe your gait changed, maybe uh, maybe you're holding your hip differently than you used to. All of that is really probably where the, the solution is, but that is not something that you're going to get from the majority of uh, surgeons and or doctors today. So that was just... A- and I'm hoping that they're starting to, because I know being in the Pilates world now, um, MDs are now saying to their clients, okay, you have a backache. You're going to have to find a movement that fits with your lifestyle that will help you with that back pain because the habits that you have now aren't working. And a lot of them are now sending it to Pilates teachers. They're saying go and strengthen your core because at this point the core is non-existent. So right. they're now referring out. So I think that 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 has been huge in the last five years, to say the least. Yeah, that they're saying okay, yoga and Pilates for sure. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah both exactly. We were talking to um, Sue Hitzman yesterday, who was talking about how you know her whole melt method and how she got from point A to point B and how how that whole thing is connected and and with those movements and with different ranges of motion and getting to the the function of the body how things start to get better and i think when you look at sue's work too is that people have to be in their bodies when they do the work yeah it good brings point. you it brings you into your body and it says okay brain you need to stop for a moment. You need to connect with your brain. I had um, an interesting conversation with a client that was taking class with me a couple of Fridays ago, and she was a little miffed at me because she said, Fran, you kept cueing the same cue at least three or four times, and it was, can you straighten your wrists? And she said, I don't, I don't understand why you keep saying it. And we, where I work, we can't single people out. I said, well, the thing is, is you need to know yourself if your wrists are not straight. And she said, but I don't know if my wrists are not straight. So there was no connection to her own body. And that, I think, is where Sue's doing the work that's changing people saying, okay, it's okay to move, but you've got to be there with you. You have to work in tandem with your body to create change. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's, I'm hoping that that's how we're changing movement. It's like you, it's not just something that someone tells you what to do. It's something that you participate in. I find that a lot with, with, uh, in the trauma world where, the accident happened, uh, the, the pre-accident, post-accident, but all the damage happened here. But your brain was too busy doing other things over here. And until you bring the brain back online with the body, bring it back into the body, and then tell the story of how it got that way, then it clicks on and then it can be part of the assisting factor that changes. Because if all, all it knows is pain... We're, it's stuck in this little dark vault where all it all it's getting is signaling mechanisms, but 
it doesn't know how it got there. So bringing the brain and and bringing the brain online and then helping you become part of your body certainly helps in the healing process for sure. And, and as therapists too, John, what I'm finding is is that even just holding hands on someone whilst they describe the trauma seems to bring them back in their body. And I yes. just love that. I find that yeah. for us, that's a great tool. Our hands mean more when we don't put words in it. We just use our hands as the, as the actual mechanism to create connection for their brain and their bodies. We're right. just like a conduit, if you will. Right. Exactly. Very you, nice. You've been to uh, Carlos Deco's thing twice, yeah? Three times, two times? Um, I have been to winter fascia school. I went to summer fascia school. I just went in June. I went to the Italian lab with John Sharkey and Carla at the Trekkie lab in Cremona in Italy. So, yeah, I've been there. I've been in the same room with her a number of times. So it's fair to say that you have traveled the world to hone your craft. <laughs> and it's been great. It's been beyond it. My husband traveled a lot when my child was small and he's now stopped traveling because he was in high tech. And now I'm going, sorry, leaving you. Got things to do and people to see, things to learn. So it's been my turn and it's been fabulous. Um, I'm often jealous of you watching your Facebook page and where you're going and what you get to do. When you talked about that Germany thing, the first one, uh, I was told no, I couldn't go. All right, not, but you know not, what? Not just by this one, by my <laughs> wife too. It's like you're not leaving me for two weeks. There's then going to going to Germany. There's no, no way. It was longer than two. weeks. Was it weeks. three weeks? It was like three weeks, huh? The uh, first one. I want to say it was. Three or six weeks. Oh, it might have been six, huh? Yeah. That was that was the long-term project. That was the Freya project. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That was yeah. going to be the, the yeah. you know, three months, then do a week, three months, then do a week, three months. Yeah, week. yeah. I don't understand why they wouldn't let me leave my job <laughs> that paid them to go do three months worth of work. On something really cool. Yeah. Well, I, you know, John, that's true. You do. You end up working harder before you go, and you end up working harder after you go because. Of being out of the office, right? You're preaching to the choir. Yep. All right. Do you have anything else you'd like to share with our people about how this kind of work helps heal? Uh, really, if the more you know and the more your hands know, the more you're able to help people. And I think that's where well, that's our work, right? We've been put here on earth to help those that need help, those that are in pain. And if we can just make a just a small contribution to them getting out of pain, then I think we've done a good day's work. Love it. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you to both of you. It's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks Aww. for taking time. Please tell everybody hi. And uh, if you didn't if you didn't get James a kiss on the cheek today, give it to him tomorrow. <laughs> I did actually, John. Ah, uh, that's awesome. He gets it. He totally gets it. He gets it. He was he was just thrilled. The smile was from ear to ear. Nice. Aww. Uh and that's it. All right. Thank so thank thanks guys for listening to us. Mm -hmm. And thanks for listening to us and Fran talk about the body. Right. And uh we will come back to you next time with somebody interesting and important and new and different in the world of healing. And until then, y'all have a great day and be kind to others. What do you got to say? Uh, everybody be good humans. Good humans indeed. All right. Peace out, y'all. Bye.